0: Medic 43, District
1: 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. Joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Hi, Casey. And today we're going to kick off one of my favorite name series we've had on the podcast The thus best far. doctor. I, I like the name we're gonna we're gonna call this the serial killer series and we're gonna kick it off with chest pain. And where do we come up with this idea? Well we often start with the diagnosis and we teach from there. you know, CHF. We've had a CHF podcast. We've had asthma COPD podcast. Um, but really the hard part can often be how do we get from an undifferentiated chest pain patient, for example, down to a, list of these things of of M I P E dissection, you know, how do we sort through subjective, objective data, loud environments, incomplete med lists, and get there. So to go from that chaotic chest pain scene with unstable vitals and filter to that differential of number one PE, number two ACS, is often quite challenging. So Within the serial killer series, we're going to target the most common chief complaints and the killer diagnoses that you have to consider with each of those chief complaints. We're not going to spend time with costochondritis, you know, non-emergent chronic diagnoses, just the deadly ones that kill us, kill the patients when we miss them. So that's where we as emergency providers must start, and that's where we need to put the majority of our effort. So again, today we're going to kick things off with acute chest pain. So when people call us with chest pain, Dr. Dixon, what things can kill them emergently? I know anybody that's been around the office, it's been in any clinical review, run review, test review session, this is one of your favorite questions of, of all. So when people call with chest pain, what are the killers?
1: It's like the MO of the medical director, isn't it? You like you know you're going to get asked this question. Yeah. You know, if one of your buddies in the hall says, Hey, what's Dr. Patrick gonna ask you about? And he's like top five killers top five killers. I love this series, KC. Kudos for you guys for, for developing this, because this is how our patients come, isn't it? Right? They don't, they don't, sadly, uh, it would be quite kind to them if they came with their absolute diagnosis, but that's not really the way it works here, right? They call for pain. They call for short of breath. They call for some complaint they call because their, their spouse is altered, right? We have to sort these people out. You mean so they,
0: don't, they don't call and say I have <laughs> ST elevation in 2-3 uh, and AVF? No, they call and say their chest hurts.
1: Right. So when I think of these chest pain, I think of the usual suspects, right? Acute coronary syndrome or myocardial infarction, right? So whether that's STEMI or non-STEMI, pulmonary embolus, thoracic aortic dissection, pneumothorax, and cardiac tamponade; those are the five killers I think of come to mind every patient every time I, I I listen to their history, I do their clinical exam, and I tick the boxes on which which ones are unlikely and what historical and objective things I found that make some of these diagnoses more likely, along with EKG, of course.
0: So, quick disclaimer before we get started: as you listen to this series, you're going to find that we stick to five. So, the five killers for chest pain is is today's episode. We're going to talk in a future episode about shortness of breath, for example, five shortness of breath killers. And if you're a stickler out there, there is some overlap and there are differing lists. If you look on the internet or in textbooks, everybody's top five may not be ours here at MCHD. I know somebody's going to say, what about Borhoff's? Well, we want to keep to the most common and the most clinically significant, especially in the pre-hospital setting. So from the standpoint of esophageal perforation and Boerhaave's, that's number six in my book, and we're leaving that one off. We're going to do ACSMI, pulmonary embolus, thoracic dissection, pneumothorax, and and pericardial tamponade. So where do you start? Start in route. This we're going to hear this in each episode. I'm going to start with this one each time because I see it in learners all the time. They Pick up a chart. It has the chief complaint. They walk in the room, see the patient, and don't start thinking about a differential until after they walk out of the room. It's way too late. Approach every chest pain call considering the killer five diagnoses first. So you're rolling to the scene and you're thinking, ACSMI, what are the risk factors? What are the historical clues, pro and con? And I need to get the EKG to take a look. PE, what are PE risk factors? How would their exam sound? Thoracic dissection, what do those look like? I know they're rare, but they're deadly. What do they sound like? Pneumothorax, I got to get a good listen to the lungs. Cardiac tamponade, are there muffled heart sounds? Did the patient have risk factors for tamponade? Do they have JVD? So think through those five things and their pro and con bullet points as you're rolling to the scene. The vital signs are vital. Remember that we oftentimes don't have tons of objective information, especially in the EMS setting. So use your heart rate, your blood pressure, your O2 sats. We get the shortness of breath, your entitled CO2 values. 12 lead, 12 lead, 12 lead. These, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse. And, you know, our 12 lead acquisition rate here at MCHD is 99.9% for these patients. So we're getting these 12 leads, but look at them, evaluate them in an orderly fashion. Um, know what you're looking for in the uh, anatomical infarction patterns. Physical exam, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, looking for clubbing here or pupillary reaction time or uh, looking at the tympanic membrane. This is a, a general focused exam. Listen to the lungs, right? Because that can be a d- definite clue here, especially, for example, pneumothorax. Uh, listen for loud murmurs. I'm not going to describe crescendo, decrescendo, three out of six murmur. I can't do that.
1: Thank you, doctor.
0: But if you hear a big, big blowing mess that's not normal, that can definitely give you a clue. Feel for pulses, radial pulses, dorsalis pedis pulses. These can be really helpful. Get in the habit of doing that in all your chest pain patients. And then look for JVD. Uh, we're not measuring it with a, uh, a ruler, but if their neck veins are bulging, it can definitely, again, be a clue. And then OPQRST, we'll hit this one in each of the podcasts, onset, provocation, palliation, so when did it start, what makes it better, what makes it worse, quality, sharp, dull, ache, pressure, radiation into the left shoulder, radiation into the back, radiation into the epigastrium or into the abdomen. And then severity, you know, is it it acute and severe? Is it gradual and insidious and slow progressing? And then the timing, has it been there for a year? every time they move their arm to the left. Well, that's a little less worrisome than I was fine an hour ago, and now I feel like there's an ice pick through my chest. Entirely different uh, risk stratification there. So onset, what makes it better or worse? Provocation, palliation, quality, radiation, severity, and timing. And then look at their medical history. Do they have a history of hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia? If they do, what is their risk it goes up for? acute coronary syndrome, myocardial infarction. Uh, did they just get off a plane from New Zealand over visiting the Kiwis? Well, maybe they're at risk for PE. So ask about their medical history, their recent surroundings, their recent uh, events in their life. Look at their med list. Uh, oftentimes you may see, for example, Zorelto, uh, uh, Eliquis, Rivaroxaban, Apixaban, Coumadin or Warfarin on their list. Have you been taking that? No. I've been out of it for a month because I, because I couldn't afford it. Hmm, why were you on that? Well, I had a big blood clot in my leg. And they called you today for chest pain and shortness of breath. So maybe their med list can help you reverse engineer it, even into the diagnosis. So let's start with uh, first on our list, ACSMI, occlusion MI, non-occlusion MI, if you want to use current terms. Tell us some things we can look for there, Dr. Dixon.
1: So the first thing I do is I, I take a good history, right? Sit down, talk to the patient. Make sure, ensure stability, right? Always start with your ABCs, ensure stability of the patient, you know, have your partner be hooking up an EKG and then ask them, gosh, why'd you, how can we help you today? Why'd you, why'd you call? How, how can we help? And, and listen for some of these high risk historical features and then some of these things that they, they may, you may see or, or hear on their history. So those high risk features, I mean, who gets Vascular disease, right? people with previous vascular disease. So sir, have you ever had a heart attack before? Do you have any, do you have any coronary artery disease? Have you ever, do you have other things that would put you at risk for vascular disease, like hypertension, diabetes, um, elevated lipids, or hyperlipidemia, are they on a lipid medicine like Lipitor? Um, do they smoke? Super, super high association with vascular disease, right? Any type of cocaine use, again, associated with with increased risk of vascular disease and don't forget patients with rheumatism. So rheumatoid arthritis, or lupus, things like that early vascular disease. So think of the, and the one I think we forget there is age, right? Who's more common to have a heart attack? Me or Casey? Probably me, I'm older, right? So age, don't forget the age. And so when you're when you're taking this history, also kind of have a look at, at kind of how they describe their symptoms, right? Um, do they have nausea, diaphoresis? Do they have radiation to their jaw or to their shoulder? Uh, do they have pressure in their chest? Okay, where are they describing it? How are they describing it? Remember that OPQRST. I think we forget to do that, focused on why the patient called. Um, remember, don't forget the atypicals, right? We have had some patients. We, we had a case not too long ago where we had, had a delay in diagnosis because the patient simply called for shortness of breath. The patient did not have any chest pain, right? Remember this, you can have atypical presentations in elderly patients, diabetic patients, in, in women sometimes. Um, the vitals can be completely normal, right? You don't have to have vital sign abnormalities although they may exist, right? Uh, ST elevation MIs inferiorly go along with dysfunction of the SA node and, and different heart blocks and bradycardias right you can always have too high or too low of, of heart rate um, so have a look at those vital signs right they're vital for a reason uh, 12 leads I can't say too much right of early acquisition of a 12 lead and all these short of breath and and chest pain patients and looking as dr. Patrick said in those those regions of infarct that go together right they have to be anatomical regions right so 2 3 and F for an inferior 1 and in L uh, for a uh, lateral and then your precordial leads V one, two, and three, and then four, five, and six. Or you can put them in, I usually go one, two. Uh, they usually all go together, but.
0: I'm a, I'm a one through four. You're a one through four. A- I'm of anor- five an- and six. Aneroceptal, one right. L, five and six lateral. Okay. But, you know, just look in look in those anatomic patterns, whether you divide it up anterior and septal or aneroceptal, that's probably splitting hairs. Yeah. One of the things I try to do in each of these uh, podcasts was take our listeners Through sort of the next step, what do you think about as the emergency physician when you get a chest pain patient, for example, Uh, Dr. Dixon? And I know one of the more prominent uh, new developments in taking care of these folks since both of us finished residency is the heart score. Tell the patients just a little bit about the heart score and how we use it.
1: So the heart score is just one other tool that we use to try to risk stratify patients on how likely it is low, medium or high that the, their symptoms today are actually a, a heart attack or an acute coronary syndrome. And so H stands for the history. So do they have a high risk history? So just the questions that we went over, we ask them those questions and we score them. Uh, EKG findings, do they have any EKG abnormalities? A is for age, right? As we talked about earlier, I'm more likely to have a heart attack than Casey simply because of my age. Risk factors, diabetes, smoking, cocaine use, um, hypertension uh, those ones that we went over earlier right those all make it more likely uh, to have vascular disease and to have a vascular event and then uh, the last is T or troponin so there is a, a chemical test we get that uh, uh, is of a uh, protein that leaks out into the blood called troponin when the heart is damaged so just to run through those again heart score is just a risk stratification score it's history EKG, A is for age, R is for risk factors, and T is for their troponin measurement.
0: Nobody listening out there riding on the truck tomorrow is discharging chest pain patients based yeah, please on a don't. negative.
1: <laughs> please, please do not uh, <laughs> based on a negative heart score here. Should we revisit that idea about putting a disclaimer mm, in the podcast? No, we don't yeah.
0: need a disclaimer, but we do need you know just for for information's sake, this is what we're using when you deliver the patients to us as the ED physicians. And if you think about the heart score, history, EKG, age, and risk factors, the H-E-A-R, you can be thinking along that same framework when you take care of these patients. And then you know that we're going to check troponin, look for cardiac-specific proteins in the bloodstream. I have none floating around now because my heart cells aren't dying. But if I get a big clot in my LAD, I may have some troponin leaking, and that can oftentimes be the kicker in these, uh, in these MI patients. So just for, uh, for knowledge's sake, that's what we're using for stratification today in the ED. Moving on to pulmonary embolus, you'll hear about this again in the shorter breath series. We'll hit it a couple times because it can be chest pain and or shortness of breath. We teach here at MCHD chest pain and shortness of breath with clear lungs is PE until proven otherwise. Look for tachycardia and hypoxia on vitals, uh, not always present. You may hear S1Q3T3 for an EKG finding for PE patients. We know this is incredibly uh, nonsensitive, insensitive and non-specific for PE that a very, very low percentage of PE patients actually have S1Q3T3, but you may see that on a test somewhere, uh, you know, really right heart strain and uh, sinus tach are gonna be some of the common, more common EKG findings that you see. Think about some of the high risk history. So the historical findings you wanna ask when you're thinking about PE, uh, sedentary, recent surgery or hospitalization, long travel, uh, long car rides or plane rides, like we talked about the uh, patient that returned from New Zealand, oral contraception, and that can be birth control or hormone replacement therapy, estrogens and progesterone, cancer history, past history of DVT and PE, It's like the patient that was on Xarelto not taking it, they're at high risk for PE. Um, Pregnant and postpartum being the other group that's often forgotten, um, especially that two-week postpartum patient with chest pain and shortness of breath, that pregnancy puts them at high risk. They were prepped to clot when they delivered that placenta, and sometimes that can go into overdrive. Um, What about uh, thoracic aortic dissection? Tell us a little about TAD and I'm going to, before I lead you into it, this is one that I was probably in residency before I clearly in my mind had a differentiation delineation between aortic dissection, thoracic aortic dissection and AAA or abdominal aortic aneurysm, which we'll get to in the abdominal pain serial killer series. So differentiate between those for the listeners, because it was not an easy one for me.
1: You read my mind, doctor. That's, uh, we think alike. So- it's a very common, I think, misnomer there that these are the same entity when in fact they're completely different. Thoracic aortic dissection, a, typically caused by high blood pressure chronic high blood pressure, is the most common cause, is a ripping away of the blood vessel from the wall. So the blood vessel not is not ruptured into a free space, as opposed to uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a chronic uh, dilation. Of the abdominal aorta right and a disease of usually someone in their seventh to ninth decade and then this thing gets bigger 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 and ruptures maybe associated with dissection within it but is not and then when it ruptures this is a bleeding issue so the first one is really a surgical fix or a medical cause of blood pressure control uh, fix The second one is a bleeding problem, and we're going to get to that when we get to the abdominal uh, catastrophes.
0: And then the anatomy, just before you roll in here, thoracic aortic dissections start in the chest. Now, that ripping and tearing away can extend into the abdominal cavity, so you can have chest pain that radiates into the back and the abdomen because that dissection distally proceeds out of the chest cavity into the abdominal cavity, but the abdominal aortic aneurysm is strictly in the abdominal cavity and it's a diseased blood vessel that bulge aneurysm to begin with that ruptures so different pathophysiology and different anatomy um, oftentimes confused but the patients are going to look different oftentimes again that thoracic dissection patient is su- severely supremely hypertensive and that dis- or that aneurysm rupture patient is, is the, that, the other way is the <laughs> hypotensive Vascular path. So roll through some of the high points of of TAD.
1: I think that's a great uh, description. So when I think of these, the classic one is a ripping, tearing chest pain, classically that's in the chest, it's radiating to the back. But the bad part of that classic, it's only going to present like that fifty percent of the time. I mean, I think Osler uh, had some one of the great medical kind of philosophers and great clinicians early on. Uh, you know, said that this is one of the diagnoses that humbles clinicians, right? We miss this more than we get it on the first try. Uh, it's a really hard diagnosis to make. They're pretty rare, right? There's only one of these for every 600 coronary syndromes we see out there. And about a quarter of these are going die, to die prior to their diagnosis. So this is one we really don't want to, in EMS, we definitely don't want to take a refusal and leave it home. And an ED, I want to catch this before Uh, It potentially comes into the hospital or gets discharged home without being dealt with. So we talked about who's at high risk a little bit. I'm going to expound on those a bit more. So hypertensive, right? It's ripping the blood vessels, ripping away uh, the layers of it, and it's causing like a shotgun barrel in the ascending or or descending in some part of the proximal aorta as it comes off the heart. Uh, So some of the other risk factors are cocaine use, connective tissue disease like Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos, And as Casey said, uh, pregnancy also causes an increased risk of this. Uh, The other risk factor I look for is just like coronary disease, right? If they've had this disease in the past and they're having chest pain again, right? Think about thoracic aortic dissections. I think a classic finding for me, and I've seen a couple of these present this way, is they strictly presented with neurosymptoms. When you think of the anatomy, Casey, the ascending aorta comes up, and if it dissects over, one of the internal the takeoffs to the uh, carotid artery to the common carotid artery, what do you have? You have chest pain and a stroke, right? So that should alert you to a possible dissection. So any chest pain with a neuro deficit, think about dissection. Uh, exam wise on these. There's not a whole bunch on the clinical exam except for the blood pressures. Asymmetric blood pressures uh, in the upper extremities. You can take them. Typically, uh, I use about a 20% difference. If they have a 20% difference, I get a little bit worried about this. Also consider tamponade if you have these blood pressure uh, differences. A couple of cases we've had here at MCHD that gave us some clues to the diagnosis. We have one uh, a gentleman that had one, and then he turned up. He called for chest pain. He was in severe extremis. The medic very astutely gave him a complete Clinical exam. She she undressed him, and his leg was completely blue and avascular. Right there's there's really not a whole bunch else that does that. Uh, there's two types. I won't uh, delve on them all that much, except for these are are to kind of uh, help us with our approach, whether it's a surgical case or a medical case. And it's a type A or B. A dis- type A. I just remember is always ascending, and what kills. I think this this is an interesting for me. What kills patients here acutely? You, you really, acutely, you die from these because in a type A, you remember as the aorta takes off, if it's ripping kind of proximally right up by the aortic, the, the root of where the aorta comes off the heart, what can happen? It can dissect backwards into the pericardium and the patient dies of an acute tamponade, acute hemopericardium. Kind of more subacutely, what else can happen? As we said in the it, with the stroke it's the vascular downstream complications guys this thing uh, dissects off and maybe uh, dissects over the uh, inlet to the common carotid artery so you have a stroke or it dissects over uh, to one of the blood vessels supplying the valve the superior mesenteric artery and you have dead gut so you either die uh, acutely from a, a hemopericardium from a tamponade or from the ischemic uh, complications caused by vascular compromise.
0: So I think a couple of high points to hit there that are worth remembering. Classic presentation, half the time. So not always that helpful. One of these for every 600 ACS. So you're really looking for a needle in the haystack. And finally, remember Marfan's patients with connective tissue disorders. So their their, uh, blood vessel, their vascular wall integrity is disrupted. They're going to be tall, thin with really long fingers. Oftentimes that six foot eight or six foot 10, you know, 140 pound, 20 year old male. If you see that patient, that chest pain may not be costochondritis. That may be aortic dissection. Um, And then finally, remember the anatomy of the vasculature itself. You've got the uh, intima, the media and the adventitia, those three layers. And that's where the blood dissects through in between any of those three layers and can plug up any of the outflows, like you talked about: carotids, SMA, renal artery takeoff, for example. Where you can end up with renal failure. So that's a that's a that's a needle in the haystack, but definitely a serial killer. Let's hit number four: uh, pneumothorax, and we'll talk really more about spontaneous pneumothorax. Traumatic being a little bit of a different uh, different bird. Um, spontaneous pneumothorax is more common in males as opposed to females. Sharp chest pain, oftentimes described as as being pleuritic, uh, worse with breathing, breathing, short of breath. So a little overlap with our uh, shortness of breath uh, serial killers. We will talk about pneumothorax here primarily as I feel like pain is the major component here. High risk history for these folks, past pneumothorax, just like everything else. Had it once, you're at risk for having it again. Smokers, uh, COPD patients, why are they at risk for spontaneous pneumo? Because they have that destruction of their... Uh, alveolar uh, framework form blebs and those blebs are weaker walled than healthy lungs and they can they can explode or burst and then finally for whatever reason the classic test question is a tall thin male here here as well for what always seems like i remember these being basketball players i don't really know why it always ended up that way on tests key here is listen 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 and really for the most part the dirty secret of medicine is our stethoscope is a prop in the in the play that we act out,
1: did you just say that, doctor? I
0: said it out loud, to and everyone knows it's to true. All two
1: hundred thousand listeners, everyone, how many there are today? Everyone
0: knows that it's <laughs> mostly a prop, but in this situation, but we want you to use it. This is key. We've got to listen to their lungs. You've got to try to get to a quiet spot and take a good listen. We know that things impact this, right? Sirens, engines, body habitus, uh, but try to get a listen to their lungs because if they have a true moderate to severe spontaneous pneumo you should hear absence of breath sounds there and then you know for coming attractions what's going to happen in the future here your your service may have these already uh, but point of care ultrasound can be can be really helpful here and take a quick look at lung sliding on on youtube and absence of lung sliding as someone who wasn't trained to look for pneumothorax with ultrasound when i when i trained this is one that even i can do it's pretty easy Uh, So this is something that definitely is moving towards uh, the pre-hospital environment. Then from spontaneous pneumothorax, how do we progress to dying? We progress into that tension physiology realm, and that's low blood pressure, tachycardic, absent unilateral breath sounds. What's next for most services? Needle thoracostomy. And the spot for that needle thoracostomy has definitely uh, changed, I would say, over the past 10 to 15 years, and we now want to go more mid-axillary as opposed to anterior. We know from uh, many studies that have sort of piled up that our accuracy of hitting the right spot here is is not always great. So you want to get as large a bore, as long a needle as possible, um, and go lateral. Go lateral in that fourth, fifth intercostal space, middle axillary line. So that's, that's tension pneumo, and then let's wrap up with pericardial tamponade.
1: So on tamponade, you know, I like to start thinking about these on who gets them, you know, what's the high risk kind of historical findings. Uh, These are typically people, the most common are people that have had malignancy in the past. They uh, have uh, malignancy, they have renal failure, uremia, they have something that causes them to have fluid that third spaces in this potential pericardial space. Remember, there's always fluid between the epicardium and the pericardium or the outside of the of the heart in the pericardium and there's always a little bit of lubrication fluid in there it should not be much though and as you gain fluid there that can cause collapse first of the low pressure side of the heart or the right ventricle remember the low pressure pumping to the lung side and then ultimately causing preload problems and then ultimately if you have enough pressure in there can affect the high pressure side or the left side of the heart uh, so some other things would be, as I said, renal failure, malignancy, recent surgeries, uh, pacemaker placements, things like that. Uh, recent illness. Always do a good history about recent illness. Uh, don't forget pericarditis, myocarditis, so inflammation of the heart. It can be from a viral cause. So take a good history. Have they had? Have they been ill? What's the the the. Rapid Was it rapid onset or was it gradual onset? They just got more and more shortness of breath or they got chest pain. Uh, is it positional? Does it get better when they sit up or they have an inability to lay down? Those are some of the things. Uh, we always hear of Beck's triad, Casey. Uh, which is in a lot of tests so it's like so
0: hi- this is purely a test question this is purely a test have, question have I'm, I'm
1: going to give you the answer i have never diagnosed this doctor <laughs> it neither. is uh, i've made this diagnosis a bunch but i've never gone oh my gosh it's a bex triad uh, typically i remember this for the test right so it's hypotension muffled heart tones and jvd uh and as casey said i won't belabor it this is these are hard things to pick up uh on the on the clinical exam um I, I have seen electrical alternance. One of the other EKG findings you can see. And what does that mean? Especially when you have a continual cycle lead to. And what you'll have there is when you think about it, you're measuring the electrical kind of activity in the heart. And as if the effusion is big enough, it will the heart will actually move, kind of swing around on a pendulum, if you will, if you can picture this, guys, swinging around in this bag of fluid. And as it goes towards and away from that electrode, the QRS will actually change in amplitude, so it's a big key. So you'd see electrical alternance. We'll probably probably try to put uh, yeah. an EKG in the show notes, Casey. To Picture show that. pictures
0: worth a thousand words here, but once you see electrical alternance once, it's fairly it's cool, fairly impressive, yeah. and and it can definitely be a key if you're thinking, I don't know, is this is this tamponade or not? And you see that electrical alternance can definitely point you in the right directions. How do we treat these? So
1: I think the most important concept here is to think of the physiology of what's killing the patient. Remember, as you get fluid around there, it's going to affect the low pressure side or the preload side of the heart. So how do we buy time and get these patients to definitive care, which is ultimately to get this fluid blood, what have you, from compressing the heart is to put a needle or do a surgical decompression. That's not going to be done in the field, but how we can buy time is we can push fluids, right up to the right side of the heart and by time. So push preload by giving fluids. Number one thing you can do. Uh, I'll touch briefly on an adjunct for those of you with point of care ultrasound. Uh, this is very, very sensitive. We had a, a trauma patient here. We identified with a hemopericardium, had an excellent outcome, but was diagnosed by our chief in the field with point of care ultrasound.
0: So let's, let's take it home from there. That's a, that's a spot to wrap it up. Next chest pain run you get, Think about the five chest pain serial killers, ACSMI, so infarction, pulmonary infarction, PE, number two. So ACSMI, number one, PE, number two, thoracic aortic dissection, split in the wall of that vasculature, number three, pneumothorax, number four, and pericardial tamponade physiology, number five. Always arrive with those same five serial killers in mind when you're taking care of chest pain patients. Remember, vital signs are vital. Use them to your advantage. Use your hypoxia and your tachycardia when you're thinking about PE, for example. Use the 12 lead. Look for ischemia in the anatomic patterns that we know. Think about your uh, STEMI mimics. Think about your STEMI equivalents. And we'll have more on those in podcast 360 coming up where we can do a little more visual stuff with you guys. Don't forget the exam. Listen for Big Giant Murmur. Um... Listen for absent breath sounds. Get get a quiet second to try to listen to those lungs. Feel pulses. Palpate calves. Do a neuro exam in patients with chest pain. I've caught a couple dissections from that as well. So chest pain plus neuro findings, that equals thoracic dissection. And don't forget PE, dissection, pneumothorax, risk factors. Uh, Review those and ask those specifically when you're concerned for those specific diagnoses. And remember, coming soon, probably looking at more point-of-care ultrasound as technology improves and costs decrease. Going to be seeing this more and more and more on our ambulances. So as always, if you have questions or uh, podcast ideas, email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dixon.
1: Welcome. Thanks for having me, Casey.
0: Thank you, everybody out there, for listening, as always. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts.
1: Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.